Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 106, Marital Morass. This episode of Craplet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. The Golden Gate Fiber Institute. Check out goldengatefiberinstitute.org for information on the 2009 Institute. And Carolina Homespun at carolinahomespun.com. You can find previous episodes of Craftlit on the craftlit.blogspot.com blog. There is a new player at the top of the middle column, and we are hoping dearly that it not only plays, but will play all back issues for you as well. So far, I'm having a heck of a time getting it to load on my Mac, but I'm hoping that it will load on PCs. So give it a shot and let me know if you don't mind. MamaOKnits at gmail.com. Well, hello. Today has been one of those days. We had a storm uh, last night that had the dogs in such a state that they were trying to bury themselves underneath my bed. It being a, what's it called? A captain's bed where it's wooden with drawers underneath. So there's really no under the bed, under the bed. It made for a long, long night full of dog digging on carpet. Not a lot of fun. The husband's out of town, the kids are sick, we're supposed to go to California tomorrow, and the storm wiped out all the power for a large cross-section of Tucson, meaning that my kids' uh, summer camp slash preschool had to shut down because there was literally no power anywhere in that part of town. So I am podcasting on the fly, and I'm sure you're going to hear background noise today because there's just, there's no way to avoid it. But, but... It was a good week in other ways. I finished knitting the apricot jacket. This is a pattern that is so maligned on the internet. It really is really badly translated and exceedingly confusing. And I am not someone who frogs easily, and I frogged four times, major, major sections of this sweater. And I probably could have stood to frog even a little bit more of it, but... The finished product is lovely, although I think I need to lose a few pounds off my butt in order to make it hang better than it does. I'd like to anyway. But uh, that's lovely. I'm finishing up some socks for my dad. I'm going to try to rip out and finish the Guayabara shirt for my husband. Finally. Still spinning and knitting some socks for my sons and um, sketching a lot. A long time ago, actually it was probably a year ago, I think seem to go through these things cyclically. And uh, seasons, I think, have a lot to do with the cycles. But uh, about a year ago, I talked about wanting to sketch more and someone, I can't remember who now, reminded me to look at drawing on the right side of the brain. And I dug through my stuff and found that not only did I have the book, but I had the workbook. So I've been doing pages and pages and pages out of the workbook, and it really is helping. And I'm finding myself uh, able to draw things in a style that no longer looks like my old style, which 
wasn't very good. Now it just looks like drawing instead of something that I did. And I kind of like that. It's really rather exciting. So I'm having a lot of fun with that and I hope to get to the point where I can actually draw pictures of my kids. Next week, the University of Arizona starts and I will be teaching 102. 102 is the class that I avoided teaching last spring because I didn't want to have to write new curriculum, but the only class that was available for me was 102 for the fall. It's logic and rhetoric, mostly just rhetoric. The logic is stuff that I'm throwing in because you know how I love it. But I never took rhetoric, much less taught it. So I talked to my sister, who took rhetoric at the university herself, and am now listening to the audible.com book of uh, Aristotle's rhetoric. It's read by a British gentleman. He's no Andy Minter. He's, uh, he comes across a little more uh, stuffy. I think that's a good word for him. John Gielgud but stuffier. <laughs> That's hard to picture. I love John Gielgud. Um, so it's it's been very interesting listening actually to Aristotle's rhetoric because of course I can go back and rewind when I go, huh? But also because so much of it winds up getting transmitted to us without us noti noticing it. So I'm finding it very, very interesting and rather enlightening. And now I'm just trying to figure out how to communicate it to kids in ways that don't make their eyes glaze over. So in rapid succession, we have the university starting next week. We have uh, my son's official school starting that week. I have one full week of teaching and then head out to California for my son's surgery. As I said before, I am going to do my darndest to rack up some podcasts the way that I did when we went on vacation. So chapters will pop up for you as we go. But in case I do disappear from the edges of the earth, you at least know why. And it's nothing personal. My husband sent me a hilarious blog that uh, I'm going to link to for you. It's when, when Cakes Go Bad. It's kind of like the unit what blog site that I think froze in time a long time ago. They just stopped adding to it. This is a blog of pictures that people have sent in of cakes, birthday cakes, things like that, that just went horribly, horribly awry. And they are, they make me feel a lot better about some of the pathetic cakes that I've made for my kids. Because, uh, well, you'll just have to look yourself. It's, uh, it'll make you feel good too. I also was sent a con uh, connection to a blog post and on the seventh day cog rested, cog, C-O-G, which is the name of the blog. For anyone who has ever tried to write anything, even you know, an essay, which pretty much means all of you, you should probably read it. It's not a very long blog post and it's very funny and uh, very easy to identify with. Julie, our friend at Forgotten Classics, uh, emailed me to earlier today and told me that there is a Gawain and the Green Knight that is up on LibriVox. This like Tristan and Isolde, this is a text that I had to read in my King Arthur class back in the day, back at UCLA. And it's interesting because the information on this particular Gwen and the Green Knight talks about modern commentary on that story, which is ancient. So I'm very curious. And if it turns out that this is at all good, I... Uh, I think someday we may do this. I'm very excited at the prospect. We have been uh, back and forthing on the show notes 
I still have not been able to get any of my Ravelry stuff to post. I haven't tried in the last couple of days, but uh, nothing's working on, on Ravelry for me. I don't know if that's happening to anybody else, but it's uh, frustrating. So please don't feel bad if I haven't written back to you. I simply can't. <laughs> it's just that simple. Uh, but the consensus that we've gotten on the show notes is this. I have decided unilaterally in my role as the benevolent dictator of Craftlet, I've decided I wanted to do Jekyll and Hyde next. It's short. It's very different from Little Women. And it's um, different not just because it's not about, you know, chicks doing chick stuff. It's also different because it's written in a completely different style. And it's also one of those things that, as someone said on the show notes, is derivative. Everybody, it's not derivative. A lot of things are derivative from, of Jekyll and Hyde. Even Warner Brothers cartoons, these are things that we've seen refer back to Jekyll and Hyde our entire lives. But it's those kinds of books that seem ubiquitous. Oh, well, I already know that story because blah, 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 guy takes potion, blah, 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 monster, blah, blah, blah. We think we know it. And maybe not so much. Just like with Frankenstein, you know, you think you know what Frankenstein's about, and it turns out not to be. Or me, you think you know what Tale of Two Cities, one of the greatest works of Dickens-era fiction ever. I read the first two, the last two, and thought I knew what it was about. Clearly, not so much. But um, very excited about Jekyll and Hyde. And then the suggestions, the dominant suggestion is to do The Scarlet Letter next. Again, very different from Jekyll and Hyde, although still in that kind of American Gothic thing. American Gothic, not British. But um, I'm loving the idea. I taught The Scarlet Letter every year that I taught in New York City, and it was always one of my kids' favorite books, which just flies in the face of conventional educational wisdom these days. But <clears throat> makes me very, very happy at the prospect of, of doing it on craft. But for one thing, I have gazillions of notes on the text. And for another thing, it is a book that I truly love. And uh, I think Hester is a very, very interesting character. I think Hawthorne was much more of a feminist than I ever gave him credit for uh, when I was younger and, and reading his stuff earlier. So Scarlet Letter is probably on deck after Jekyll and Hyde. There has been a persistent request for Alice in Wonderland. I'm still toying with it. I am not positive yet. However, one of the conversation strings online has been that when we do Scarlet Letter, it should not be a LibriVox book. It should be recorded by us. We, the greater podcast, Craft Lit podcast community. And Brenda Dane, if you're listening, this means you as well. Brenda was complaining that I've never actually directly asked her to read for us. And of course, it's because I know she's really ridiculously busy and I don't want to put her out. But now, Brenda, I'm calling. I'm knocking on the door. Because Scarlet Letter, Scarlet Letter could use some good readers. And we have, uh, we have good readers in droves, as you will see again this week, because Aaron recorded Chapter 28 for us, which is what we're doing today. One of the reasons why I've hesitated doing Alice in Wonderland in the past is because the LibriVox, I, I've only listened to a small portion of the LibriVox uh, audio, but more than that, I read Alice in Wonderland to my kids a year ago, and it is brutal. 
to read out loud because so, so much of the wordplay is visual. How he has spelled words lets you know what he's sub-referencing. Lewis Carroll was a genius, um, much the way that if you've read any of John Lennon's short stories or um, A Spaniard in the Works, things like that, uh, he, he played with language the same way. Goo goo Um It makes me a little nervous. I'm not sure we can pull it off, but I will hold that thought and reserve judgment because maybe one of you will do a demo recording of a very difficult chapter or section of a chapter. You don't have to do a whole chapter in Alice in Wonderland. And maybe that will convince me that we can actually pull this one off. It, it's tough. It's tough. But I'm up for the challenge if you are. But I really like the idea of us recording for us. And then I can pass the files on to LibriVox with your names attached to your own audio files. And it can be our gift back to them of a really quality recording. <laughs> of a book. I, uh, in talking to one of our listeners, I found a link to a page that contains all of the audio files of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series in mp3 form, and not the Americanized version where they chopped seven and a half minutes off of each episode, but the British version. I have no idea if this page is still going to be on the web. It seemed to me that that would not be something that you could do copyright-wise, because I was convinced that the BBC was still selling the audio cassettes. But I went to the BBC site and I couldn't find them. I couldn't find them to buy them, but I did find this other link. So I don't know, maybe the BBC is just putting it out as a podcast. I have no idea. But if you have ever wondered what the hoo-ha was about, about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, my recommendation is not to read the books. Listen to the radio show. It was written to be a radio show, the books came later. The books in the radio show don't exactly match all the time either. And the radio show, at least the first six episodes, preceded the books by quite a chunk of time. Uh, very funny. Very smart. Very clever. I was just listening to the first episode again, and the only thing really that has happened that makes the narrative, you kind of go, huh, is that there are cell phones now everywhere. There are things that Adams wrote about in, I think it was 1978, when he first wrote the radio play, that we now have computers doing, that we didn't have computers doing back then. This is in the day of TRS-80s. I don't think there were even Apple IIe's when he wrote this. K-Pros, maybe if you remember the K-Pro, the portable K-Pro that weighed about 25 pounds. God bless it. That was, those were the good days <laughs> when a portable computer meant it weighed more than your luggage. Oh, I need to send out some thank yous right now. Jen, one of our listeners, sent me a DVD copy of Little House on the Prairie, the Disney version that came out recently. And I am so, so appreciative. Jen, that was just the sweetest thing. Your card was lovely. And I I sat up really way too late uh, the last, not last night because we had the storm and I was convinced everything was going to shut down, but the two nights before that and just watched. And they're wonderful. Okay, the music, the music's not that wonderful. It's a little cheese ball. It's like a a wannabe carpenter soundtrack but if you can get past the music 
oh, they did a good job. They did a good job, and I was really happy. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. It was a, a lovely, lovely gift from you, and, uh, and I really, really appreciate it. I also want to thank Elizabeth for the subscription to Real Simple. It's arriving, and it's, it's everything you said it would be. And I really appreciate it because God knows I can use some simplifying now. We got an audio comment off of Snapvine that I would like to play for you, although I'm going to have to record this rather uh, unorthodoxly. So hang on. Here we go. This is Lise, and I actually have my own podcast, Knitting Rose. But I had to let you know that I was listening to, gosh, I can't remember, I think it was episode 93. It was the episode that we get to know Beth, and she gets the piano from the old man next door. I have to say, I've seen the movie, I've read the book, Little Women, and I have never been so touched by that particular part of the story before. I understood Beth in a way that I've never understood her before. And listening to you read that chapter, I was driving home, because I usually listen on the way to work and on the way home from work. And I was driving home, and I started crying in my car because I was so touched by Beth and her soft heart and her love and her generosity of spirit for that old man and how kind he was to her to give her something that meant so much to her and that she appreciated it and just... I had just never noticed Beth as a character before. I always thought she was kind of whiny, not whiny, but she was so shy. She was kind of a pain because she was so shy. And I just, this is the first time I understood her. It's the first time I got her and I fell in love with her. I just had to let you know. I just had to let you know because I have not been that affected by a book in a long time. And it meant something to me. So. Just wanted to share. I will probably send you a comment later on. Take care, and thank you so much for having your podcast. Bye. Isn't that cool? I love, okay, I love the audio podcast, but also I love being affected by books that way. And again, I I have the same reactions that you guys have to, to some of these sections of text that I read, you know, years ago, and you kind of go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you're older, you're a mom, you've been out in the work world or whatever, suddenly it all kicks in and you go, oh, that's, that's what it is. That's who Beth is. I get it. We have gotten more and more wonderful comments about Beth during the course of this novel than anyone else. And it's interesting because I think the majority of the people who have written self-identify as Joe. But it's Beth this time around that's having an impact on us. And I think that is spectacular. All right, I think I've yammered enough. I'm going to get y'all into chapter 28. Uh, You will recall that I titled this episode Marital Morass. This is a rather famous chapter. It gets excerpted often. And while the setup for the chapter is rather old-fashioned, the thing that I find interesting in this chapter is Meg's relationship with her husband. I don't know 
that things for new married couples have changed all that much from this time period. I remember thinking much the same as Meg, and I remember failing much the same as Meg. I wasn't staying at home at the time. I was working full-time jobs, and honestly, my husband is a far, far better housekeeper than I am, a fact that I am sure I have mentioned before. But emotionally, I remember what this felt like. And listening to the chapter always brings kind of a bittersweet smile to my face. I I don't think Meg is ever as fully realized in this book as she is in this particular chapter, which I'm sure is one of the reasons why it's excerpted so often. And I think also one of the reasons why I like it so much. It just speaks volumes to me about how how little humans change, really. I mean, we have cell phones and we have fast cars and God knows our lives are, are uh, more frenetic these days than they were back then. But when it comes down to actual human relationships, you know, not all that much has changed, which I suppose is why we still go back and read all of these books and Shakespeare and and the Bible and Gilgamesh and, you know, people are people. And that I find to be an awfully comforting thought. So I will leave you with that. Today we have Erin, our own fabulous Erin of uh, fairy tale knitting, or fairy knitting, not fairy tale knitting, who is uh, reading chapter 28 for us. And here you go. Chapter 28 Domestic Experiences. Read by Erin. Like most other young matrons, Meg began her married life with the determination to be a model housekeeper. John should find home a paradise. He should always see a smiling face, should fare sumptuously every day, and never know the loss of a button. She brought so much love, energy, and cheerfulness to the work that she could not but succeed in spite of some obstacles. Her paradise was not a tranquil one, for the little woman fussed, was over-anxious to please, and bustled about like a true Martha, cumbered with many cares. She was too tired sometimes even to smile. John grew dyspeptic after a course of dainty dishes, and ungratefully demanded plain fare. As for buttons, she soon learned to wonder where they went, to shake her head over the carelessness of men, and to threaten to make him sew them on himself, and see if his work would stand impatient tugs and clumsy fingers any better than hers. They were very happy, even after they discovered that they couldn't live on love alone. John did not find Meg's beauty diminished, though she beamed at him from behind the familiar coffee-pot, nor did Meg miss any of the romance from the daily parting, when her husband followed up his kiss with the tender inquiry, "'Shall I send home veal or mutton for dinner, darling?' The little house ceased to be a glorified bower, but it became a home, and the young couple soon felt that it was a change for the better. At first they played keep-house and frolicked over it like children. Then John took steadily to business, feeling the cares of the head of a family upon his shoulders, and Meg laid by her cambric wrappers, put on a big apron, and fell to work, as before said, with more energy than discretion. While the cooking mania lasted, she went through Mrs. Cornelia's receipt book as if it were a mathematical exercise, working out the problems with patience and care. 
Sometimes her family were invited in to help eat up a too bounteous feast of successes, or Lottie would be privately dispatched with a batch of failures, which were to be concealed from all eyes in the convenient stomachs of the little Hummels. An evening with John over the account books usually produced a temporary lull in the culinary enthusiasm, and a frugal fit would ensue, during which the poor man was put through a course of bread-pudding, hash, and warmed-over coffee, which tried his soul, although he bore it with praiseworthy fortitude. Before the golden mean was found, however, Meg added to her domestic possessions what young couples seldom get on long without—a family jar. Fired with a housewifely wish to see her storeroom stocked with homemade preserves, she undertook to put up her own currant jelly. John was requested to order home a dozen or so of little pots, and an extra quantity of sugar for their own currants were ripe, and were to be attended to at once. As John firmly believed that my wife was equal to anything, and took a natural pride in her skill, he resolved that she should be gratified, and their only crop of fruit laid by in a most pleasing form for winter use. Home came four dozen delightful little pots, half a barrel of sugar, and a small boy to pick the currants for her. With her pretty hair tucked into a little cap, arms bared to the elbow, and a checked apron which had a coquettish look in spite of the bib, the young housewife fell to work, feeling no doubts about her success, for hadn't she seen Hannah do it hundreds of times? The array of pots rather amazed her at first, but John was so fond of jelly, and the nice little jars would look so well on the top shelf that Meg resolved to fill them all, and spent a long day picking, boiling, straining, and fussing over her jelly. She did her best. She asked advice of Mrs. Cornelius. She racked her brain to remember what Hannah did that she left undone. She reboiled, resugared, and restrained, but that dreadful stuff wouldn't gel. She longed to run home, bib and all, and ask Mother to lend a hand, but John and she had agreed that they would never annoy anyone with their private worries, experiments, or quarrels. They had laughed over that last word as if the idea it suggested was a most preposterous one, but they had held to their resolve, and whenever they could get on without help, they did so, and no one interfered, for Mrs. March had advised the plan. So Meg wrestled alone with the refractory sweetmeats all that hot summer day, and at five o'clock, sat down in her topsy-turvy kitchen, wrung her bedaubed hands, lifted up her voice, and wept. Now, in the first flush of the new life, she had often said, My husband shall always feel free to bring a friend home whenever he likes. I shall always be prepared. There shall be no flurry, no scolding, no discomfort, but a neat house, a cheerful wife, and a good dinner. John, dear, never stop to ask my leave. Invite whom you please, and be sure of a welcome from me. How charming that was, to be sure. John quite glowed with pride to hear her say it, and felt what a blessed thing it was to have a superior wife. But although they had had company from time to time, it never happened to be unexpected, and Meg had never had an opportunity to distinguish herself till now. It always happened so in this vale of tears. There is an inevitability about such things which we can only wonder at, deplore, and bear as we best can. If John had not forgotten all about the jelly, it really would have been unpardonable in him to choose that day of all the days in the year to bring a friend home to dinner unexpectedly. 
Congratulating himself that a handsome repast had been ordered that morning, feeling sure that it would be ready to the minute, and indulging in pleasant anticipations of the charming effect it would produce when his pretty wife came running out to meet him, he escorted his friend to his mansion with the irrepressible satisfaction of a young host and husband. It is a world of disappointments, as John discovered when he reached the dovecote. The front door usually stood hospitably opened. Now it was not only shut, but locked, and yesterday's mud still adorned the steps. The parlor windows were closed and curtained, no picture of the pretty wife sewing on the piazza, in white, with a distracting little bow in her hair, or a bright-eyed hostess, smiling a shy welcome as she greeted her guest. Nothing of the sort, for not a soul appeared but a sanguinary-looking boy asleep under the currant bushes. I I'm afraid something has happened. "'Step into the garden, Scott, while I look up Mrs. Brooks,' said John, alarmed at the silence and solitude. Round the house he hurried, led by a pungent smell of burned sugar, and Mr. Scott strolled after him with a queer look on his face. He paused discreetly at a distance when Brooke disappeared, but he could both see and hear, and, being a bachelor, enjoyed the prospect mightily. In the kitchen reigned confusion and despair. One edition of jelly was trickled from pot to pot, another lay upon the floor, and a third was burning gaily on the stove. Lottie, with Teutonic phlegm, was calmly eating bread and currant wine, for the jelly was still in a hopelessly liquid state, while Mrs. Brooke, with her apron over her head, sat sobbing dismally. "'My dearest girl, what is the matter?' cried John, running in, with awful visions of scalded hands, sudden news of affliction, and secret consternation at the thought of the guest in the garden. "'Oh, John, I am so tired and hot and cross and worried. I've been at it till I'm all worn out. Do come and help me, or I shall die.' and the exhausted housewife cast herself upon his breast, giving him a sweet welcome in every sense of the word, for her pinafore had been baptized at the same time as the floor. "'What worries you, dear? Has anything dreadful happened?' asked the anxious John, tenderly kissing the crown of the little cap, which was all askew. "'Yes!' <laughs> sobbed Meg despairingly. "'Tell me quick, then. Don't cry. I can bear anything better than that. Out with it, love!' <laughs> "'The—' "'The jelly won't gel, and I don't know what to do!' John Brooke laughed then as he never dared to laugh afterward, and the derisive Scott smiled involuntarily as he heard the hearty peal, which put the finishing stroke to poor Meg's woe. "'Is that all? I'll fling it out of window, and don't bother any more about it. I'll buy you quartz if you want it, but for heaven's sake don't have hysterics, for I brought Jack Scott home to dinner, and—' John got no further, for Meg cast him off and clasped her hands with a tragic gesture as she fell into a chair, exclaiming in a tone of mingled indignation, reproach, and dismay, "'A man to dinner, and everything in a mess! John Brooke, how could you do such a thing?' "'Hush, she's in the garden. I forgot the confounded jelly, but it can't be helped now,' said John, surveying the prospect with an anxious eye. "'You ought to have sent word.' "'or told me this morning, and you ought to have remembered how busy I was,' "'continued Meg petulantly, for even turtle-doves will peck when ruffled. "'I didn't know it this morning, and there was no time to send word, for I met him on the way out. "'I never thought of asking leave, when you have always told me to do as I liked. "'I never tried it before, and hang me if I ever do again,' added John, with an aggrieved air. "'I should hope not. Take him away at once. I can't see him, and there isn't any dinner.' "'Well, I like that.' 
"'Where's the beef and vegetables I sent home and the pudding you promised?' cried John, rushing to the larder. "'I hadn't time to cook anything. I meant to dine at Mother's. I'm sorry, but I was so busy.' And Meg's tears began again. John was a mild man, but he was human, and after a long day's work to come home tired, hungry, and hopeful to find a chaotic house, an empty table, and a cross-wife was not exactly conducive to repose of mind or manner.' He restrained himself, however, and the little squall would have blown over, but for one unlucky word. "'It's a scrape, I acknowledge. But if you will lend a hand, we'll pull through and have a good time yet. Don't cry, dear, but just exert yourself a bit and fix us up something to eat. We're both as hungry as hunters, so we shan't mind what it is. Give us the cold meat and bread and cheese. We won't ask for jelly.' He meant it for a good-natured joke, but that one word sealed his fate. Meg thought it was too cruel to hint about her sad failure, and the last atom of patience vanished as he spoke. "'You must get yourself out of the scrape as you can. I'm too used up to exert myself for anyone. It's like a man to propose a bone and vulgar bread and cheese for company. I won't have anything of the sort in my house. Take that Scott up to Mother's and tell him I'm away, sick, dead, anything. I won't see him, and you two can laugh at me and my jelly as much as you like. You won't have anything else here.' and having delivered her defiance all in one breath, Meg cast away her pinafore and precipitately left the field to bemoan herself in her own room. What those two creatures did in her absence she never knew, but Mr. Scott was not taken up to mother's, and when Meg descended, after they had strolled away together, she found traces of a promiscuous lunch which filled her with horror. Lottie reported that they had eaten a much, and greatly laughed, and the master bid her throw away all the sweet stuff and hide the pots. Meg longed to go and tell Mother, but a sense of shame at her own shortcomings, of loyalty to John, who might be cruel, but nobody should know it, restrained her, and after a summary clearing up, she dressed herself prettily, and sat down to wait for John to come and be forgiven. Unfortunately, John didn't come, not seeing the matter in that light. He had carried it off as a good joke with Scott, excused his little wife as well as he could, and played the host so hospitably that his friend enjoyed the impromptu dinner, and promised to come again. But John was angry, though he did not show it. He felt that Meg had got him into a scrape, and then deserted him in his hour of need. It wasn't fair to tell a man to bring folks home any time with perfect freedom, and when he took you at your word to flame up and blame him, and leave him in the lurch to be laughed at or pitied. No, by George, it wasn't, and Meg must know it. He had fumed inwardly during the feast, but when the flurry was over and he strolled home after seeing Scott off, a milder mood came over him. Poor little thing! It was hard upon her when she tried so heartily to please me. She was wrong, of course, but then she was young. I must be patient and teach her. He hoped she had not gone home. He hated gossip and interference. For a minute he was ruffled again at the mere thought of it. And then the fear that Meg would cry herself sick softened his heart, and sent him on at a quicker pace, resolving to be calm and kind, but firm, quite firm, and show her where she had failed in her duty to her spouse. Meg likewise resolved to be calm and kind, but firm, and show him his duty. She longed to run to meet him, and beg pardon, and be kissed and comforted, as she was sure of being, but of course she did nothing of the sort, and when she saw John coming, began to hum quite naturally as she rocked and sewed like a lady of leisure in her best parlor. John was a little disappointed not to find a tender Niobe, but feeling that his dignity demanded the first apology, he made none, 
only came leisurely in and laid himself upon the sofa with the singularly relevant remark, "'We are going to have a new moon, my dear.' "'I've no objection,' was Meg's equally soothing remark. A few other topics of general interest were introduced by Mr. Brooke and wet-blanketed by Mrs. Brooke, and conversation languished. John went to one window, unfolded his paper, and wrapped himself in it, figuratively speaking. Meg went to the other window, and sewed as if new rosettes for her slippers were among the necessaries of life. Neither spoke. Both looked quite calm and firm, and both felt desperately uncomfortable. "'Oh, dear,' thought Meg. "'Married life is very trying, and does need infinite patience as well as love, as Mother says.' The word mother suggested other maternal counsels given long ago and received with unbelieving protests. John is a good man, but he has his faults, and you must learn to see and bear with them, remembering your own. He is very decided, but never will be obstinate if you reason kindly, not oppose impatiently. He is very accurate and particular about the truth, a good trait, though you call him fussy. Never deceive him by look or word, Meg, and he will give you the confidence you deserve, the support you need. He has a temper, not like ours, one flash and then all over, but the white, still anger that is seldom stirred, but once kindled, is hard to quench. Be careful, very careful, not to wake his anger against yourself, for peace and happiness depend on keeping his respect. Watch yourself. Be the first to ask pardon if you both err and guard against the little peaks, misunderstandings, and hasty words that often pave the way for bitter sorrow and regret. These words came back to Meg as she sat sewing in the sunset, especially the last. This was the first serious disagreement. Her own hasty speeches sounded both silly and unkind as she recalled them. Her own anger looked childish now, and thoughts of poor John coming home to such a scene quite melted her heart. She glanced at him with tears in her eyes, but he did not see them. She put down her work and got up, thinking, I will be the first to say, forgive me. But he did not seem to hear her. She went very slowly across the room, for pride was hard to swallow, and stood by him, but he did not turn his head. For a minute she felt as if she really couldn't do it. Then came the thought, this is the beginning. I'll do my part and have nothing to reproach myself with and stooping down she softly kissed her husband on the forehead of course that settled it the penitent kiss was better than a world of words and john had her on his knee in a minute saying tenderly it was too bad to laugh at the poor little jelly pots forgive me dear i never will again but he did oh bless you yes hundreds of times and so did meg both declaring that it was the sweetest jelly they ever made for family peace was preserved in that little family jar after this, Meg had Mr. Scott to dinner by special invitation, and served him up a pleasant feast without a cooked wife for the first course, on which occasion she was so gay and gracious and made everything go off so charmingly that Mr. Scott told John he was a happy fellow and shook his head over the hardships of bachelorhood all the way home. In the autumn, new trials and experiences came to Meg. Sally Moffat renewed her friendship, was always running out for a dish of gossip at the little house, or inviting that poor dear to come in and spend the day at the big house. It was pleasant, for in dull weather Meg often felt lonely. All were busy at home, John absent till night, and nothing to do but sew or read or potter about. So it naturally fell out that Meg got into the way of gadding and gossiping with her friend. Seeing Sally's pretty things made her long for such, and pity herself because she had not got them. 
Sally was very kind, and often offered her the coveted trifles, but Meg declined them, knowing that John wouldn't like it. And then this foolish little woman went and did what John disliked infinitely worse. She knew her husband's income, and she loved to feel that he trusted her, not only with his happiness, but what some men seemed to value more, his money. She knew where it was, was free to take what she liked, and all he asked was that she should keep account of every penny, pay bills once a month, and remember that she was a poor man's wife. Till now she had done well, been prudent and exact, kept her little account books neatly, and showed them to him monthly without fear. But that autumn the serpent got into Meg's paradise and tempted her like many a modern Eve, not with apples, but with dress. Meg didn't like to be pitied and made to feel poor. It irritated her but she was ashamed to confess it, and now and then she tried to console herself by buying something pretty, so that Sally needn't think she had to economize. She always felt wicked after it, for the pretty things were seldom necessaries, but then they cost so little it wasn't worth worrying about. So the trifles increased unconsciously, and in the shopping excursions she was no longer a passive looker-on. But the trifles cost more than one would imagine, and when she cast up her accounts at the end of the month the sum total rather scared her. John was busy that month, and left the bills to her. The next month he was absent, but the third he had a grand quarterly settling up, and Meg never forgot it. A few days before, she had done a dreadful thing, and it weighed upon her conscience. Sally had been buying silks, and Meg longed for a new one, just a handsome, light one for parties. Her black silk was so common, and thin things for evening wear were only proper for girls. Aunt March usually gave the sisters a present of twenty-five dollars apiece at New Year's. That was only a month to wait, and here was a lovely violet silk going at a bargain, and she had the money, if she only dared to take it. John always said what it was his was hers, but would he think it right to spend not only the prospective five-and-twenty, but another five-and-twenty out of the household fund? That was the question. Sally had urged her to do it, had offered to lend the money, and with the best intentions in life had tempted Meg beyond her strength. In an evil moment the shopman held up the lovely shimmering folds and said, A bargain, I assure you, ma'am. She answered, I'll take it, and it was cut off and paid for, and Sally had exulted, and she had laughed as if it were a thing of no consequence and driven away, feeling as if she had stolen something and the police were after her. When she got home, she tried to assuage the pangs of remorse by spreading forth the lovely silk, but it looked less silvery now, didn't become her after all, and the words, Fifty dollars, seemed stamped like a pattern down each breadth. She put it away, but it haunted her, not delightfully as a new dress should, but dreadfully, like the ghost of a folly that was not easily laid. When John got out his books that night, Meg's heart sank, and for the first time in her married life she was afraid of her husband. The kind brown eyes looked as if they could be stern, and though he was unusually merry, she fancied he had found her out, but didn't mean to let her know it. The house bills were all paid, the books all in order. John had praised her, and was undoing the old pocket-book which they called the bank, when Meg, knowing that it was quite empty, stopped his hand, saying nervously, "'You haven't seen my private expense-book yet?' "'John had never asked to see it, but she always insisted on his doing so, "'and used to enjoy his masculine amazement at the queer things women wanted, "'and made him guess what piping was, "'demand fiercely the meaning of a hug-me-tight, 
or wonder how a little thing composed of three rosebuds, a bit of velvet, and a pair of strings could possibly be a bonnet and cost five or six dollars. That night he looked as if he would like the fun of quizzing her figures and pretending to be horrified at her extravagance, as he often did, being particularly proud of his prudent wife. The little book was brought slowly out and laid down before him. Meg got behind his chair under pretense of smoothing the wrinkles out of his tired forehead, and standing there, she said, with her panic increasing it with every word, "'John, dear, I'm ashamed to show you my book, for I've really been dreadfully extravagant lately. I go about so much I must have things, you know, and Sally advised my getting it, so I did, and my New Year's money will partly pay for it, but I was sorry after I'd done it, for I knew you'd think it wrong in me.' John laughed and drew her round beside him, saying good-humouredly, "'Don't go and hide. I won't beat you if you have got a pair of killing boots. I'm rather proud of my wife's feet, and don't mind if she does pay eight or nine dollars for her boots, if they are good ones.' That had been one of her last trifles, and John's eye had fallen on it as he spoke. "'Oh, what will he say when he comes to that awful fifty dollars?' thought Meg with a shiver. "'It's worse than boots. It's a silk dress.' she said, with the calmness of desperation, for she wanted the worst over. "'Well, dear, what is the dem total, as Mr. Mantellini says?' That didn't sound like John, and she knew he was looking up at her with the straightforward look that she had always been ready to meet and answer with one as frank till now. She turned the page and her head at the same time, pointing to the sum which would have been bad enough without the fifty, but which was appalling to her with that added. For a minute the room was very still. Then John said slowly, but she could feel it cost him an effort to express no displeasure, "'Well, I don't know that fifty is much for a dress, with all the furbelows and notions you have to finish it off these days.' "'It isn't made or trimmed,' sighed Meg faintly, for a sudden recollection of the cost still to be incurred quite overwhelmed her. Twenty-five yards of silk seems a good deal to cover one small woman, but I've no doubt my wife will look as fine as Ned Moffat's when she gets it on, said John, dryly. I know you are angry, John, but I can't help it. I don't mean to waste your money, and I didn't think those little things would count up so. I can't resist them when I see Sally buying all she wants and pitying me because I don't. I try to be contented, but it is hard, and I'm tired of being poor. The last words were spoken so low she thought he did not hear them, but he did, and they wounded him deeply, for he had denied himself many pleasures for Meg's sake. She could have bitten her tongue out the minute she had said it, for John pushed the books away and got up, saying with a little quiver in his voice, "'I was afraid of this. I do my best, Meg.' If he had scolded her, or even shaken her, it would not have broken her heart like those few words. She ran to him and held him close, crying with repentant tears. "'Oh, John, my dear, kind, hard-working boy, I didn't mean it. It was so wicked, so untrue and ungrateful. How could I say it? Oh, how could I say it?' He was very kind, forgave her readily, and did not utter one reproach. But Meg knew that she had done and said a thing which would not be forgotten soon, although he might never allude to it again. She had promised to love him for better for worse, and then she, his wife, had reproached him with his poverty after spending his earnings recklessly. It was dreadful, and the worst of it was John went on so quietly afterward, just as if nothing had happened, except that he stayed in town later, 
and worked at night when she had gone to cry herself to sleep. A week of remorse nearly made Meg sick, and the discovery that John had countermanded the order for his new greatcoat reduced her to a state of despair which was pathetic to behold. He had simply said, in answer to her surprised inquiries as to the change, "'I can't afford it, my dear.' Meg said no more, but a few minutes after he found her in the hall with her face buried in the old greatcoat, crying as if her heart would break. They had a long talk that night and Meg learned to love her husband better for his poverty, because it seemed to have made a man of him, given him the strength and courage to fight his own way, and taught him a tender patience with which to bear and comfort the natural longings and failures of those he loved. Next day she put her pride in her pocket, went to Sally, told the truth, and asked her to buy the silk as a favor. The good-natured Mrs. Moffat willingly did so, and had the delicacy not to make her a present of it immediately afterward. Then Meg ordered home the greatcoat, and when John arrived, she put it on, and asked him how he liked her new silk gown. One can imagine what answer he made, how he received his present, and what a blissful state of things ensued. John came home early, Meg gadded no more, and that greatcoat was put on in the morning by a very happy husband, and taken off at night by a most devoted little wife. So the year rolled round, and in midsummer there came to Meg a new experience, the deepest and tenderest of a woman's life. Lori came sneaking into the kitchen of the dovecote one Saturday with an excited face, and was received with the clash of cymbals, for Hannah clapped her hands with a saucepan in one and the cover in the other. "'How's the little mamma? Where is everybody? Why didn't you tell me before I came home?' began Lori in a loud whisper. "'Happy as a queen, the dear. Every soul of em is upstairs a-worshipping. We didn't want no hurry canes around. Now you go into the parlor, and I'll send em down to you.' With which somewhat involved reply, Hannah vanished, chuckling ecstatically. Presently Joe appeared, proudly bearing a flannel bundle laid forth upon a large pillow. Joe's face was very sober, but her eyes twinkled, and there was an odd sound in her voice of repressed emotion of some sort. "'Shut your eyes and hold out your arms,' she said invitingly. Lorry backed precipitately into a corner, and put his hands behind him with an imploring gesture. "'No, thank you. I'd rather not. I shall drop it or smash it, as sure as fate.' "'Then you shan't see your nevy,' said Joe decidedly, turning as if to go. "'I will, I will. Only you must be responsible for damages.' And obeying orders, Lorry heroically shut his eyes while something was put into his arms. A peal of laughter from Joe, Amy, Mrs. March, Hannah, and John caused him to open them the next minute to find himself invested with two babies instead of one. No wonder they laughed, for the expression of his face was droll enough to convulse a Quaker as he stood and stared wildly from the unconscious innocence to the hilarious spectators with such dismay that Joe sat down on the floor and screamed. "'Twins by Jupiter!' was all that he said for a minute. Then, turning to the women with an appealing look that was comically piteous, he added, "'Take em quick, somebody! I'm going to laugh, and I shall drop em. John rescued his babies and marched up and down, with one on each arm as if already initiated into the mysteries of baby-tending, while Lori laughed till the tears ran down his cheeks. "'It's the best joke of the season, isn't it? I wouldn't have you told, for I set my heart on surprising you, and I flatter myself I've done it,' said Joe when she got her breath. "'I never was more staggered in my life. Isn't it fun?' Are they boys? What are you going to name them? Let's have another look. Hold me up, Joe, for upon my life it's one too many for me. 
returned Laurie, regarding the infants with the air of a big, benevolent Newfoundland, looking at a pair of infantile kittens. "'Boy and girl, aren't they beauties?' said the proud papa, beaming upon the little red squirmers as if they were unfledged angels. "'Most remarkable children I ever saw. Which is which?' and Laurie bent like a well-sweep to examine the prodigies. "'Amy put a blue ribbon on the boy and a pink on the girl, French fashion, so you can always tell. Besides, one has blue eyes and one brown.' "'Kiss them, Uncle Teddy,' said Wicked Joe. "'I'm afraid they mightn't like it,' began Laurie, with unusual timidity in such matters. "'Of course they will. They're used to it now. Do it this minute, sir,' commanded Joe, fearing he might propose a proxy. Laurie screwed up his face and obeyed with a gingerly peck at each little cheek that produced another laugh and made the baby squeal. "'There. I knew they didn't like it. That's the boy. See him kick? He hits out with his fist like a good one.' "'Now, then, young Brook, pitch into a man of your own size, will you?' cried Laurie, delighted with a poke in the face from a tiny fist flapping aimlessly about. "'He's to be named John Lawrence and the girl Margaret after mother and grandmother. We shall call her Daisy, so as not to have two Megs, and I suppose the Manny will be Jack, unless we can find a better name,' said Amy, with ant-like interest. "'Name him Demi John, and call him Demi for short,' said Laurie. "'Daisy and Demi! Just the thing! I knew Teddy would do it!' cried Joe, clapping her hands. Teddy certainly had done it that time, for the babies were Daisy and Demi to the end of the chapter. End of chapter 28 Oh, it's always good to have Erin reading for us. Thank you. That was wonderful. And I think just a wonderful, fun chapter. It's also a chapter that indicates that the family dynamic has changed. Meg is not living in the house anymore. And while everyone still gets along and is still there for each other and and still participates, they don't inhabit the same space anymore. And that's kind of what happens when you get to the second half of a longer book like this. You know, the first half was all about the kids' stuff and everybody was there on top of each other and growing up with your cousins and everything like that. That's what your life is like. And then as the adult world encroaches, the adult world encroaches. Anyway, have a great week. Talk to you soon. Please remember to support the people who support CraftLit. Please go to Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. Carolina Homespun at carolinahomespun.com and thegoldengatefiberinstitute.org. You can find a blog for this podcast at craftlit.blogspot.com. That's craftlit, C-R-A-F-T-L-I-T, all one word, blogspot, B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T. Or at craftlit.libsyn.com. Libsyn is L-I-B-S-Y-N. And of course, you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous donations of its listeners. And for that, I am truly grateful. And don't forget... If your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.